Hello and welcome to another edition of the Standing Room Only Podcast. Yes, I'm your host, Ben Standing, and I cover the Washington Commanders for The Athletic, which means I spent today uh, doing really a million different things because it was an absolutely crazy day here on uh, Commander's Beat, uh, literally starting at 6 a.m. 6 I think when Adam Schefter tweeted out that uh, Terry McLaurin and other members of the 2019 uh, receiver group who are up for extensions are all not planning on participating in the on-field workouts and the day went from there we had another uh, turn in the dan snyder commanders congress uh, ftc debacle there were a bunch of really interesting top 30 visits including garrett wilson from ohio state and probably some other things i'm just not remembering which is partly why um i do have a guest with me here right off the top we, i will later talk with Daniel Wallach, an attorney specializing in sports law, to talk about the latest developments up uh, with regards to how the commanders responded um, to this uh, letter that was sent from Congress to the FTC last week. But right now to hear, help me talk about the football side of things. He is our friend, Mike Smeltz. And Mike, uh, I definitely, pre- I told you before we started, <laughs> your, your job is to give us your insight and also to keep me on track because yeah. I'm really unconfident that by myself, I'd be able to do that today. Yeah, I am. You're the lion, and I'm the lion tamer, Ben. I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep you in line, keep you to the rundown here, because it's important. Because we have a lot to get to. You just sent me on Slack the the number of the people that have worked out for the Commanders pre-draft. Uh, it's a lot to dig through. I, I think there's some big overarching things about them, but you know, this is this is a really exciting time. What are we? A week and a half from the draft, and. Oh, this is the misinformation season, which is so exciting. So um, I'm I'm so happy that we're nearly there with the draft. There's this team is incredibly interesting going into the 11th pick. Do they keep it and all that stuff? So thank you right. for having me. Yeah. By the way, I you know how I just said I probably forgot something. I did because they actually had other big news today. They hired a trainer <laughs> after right. after months. They haven't been had a trainer since week four of last season. And Ryan Vermillion still is on some sort of administrative leave amid yeah. this DEA investigation that the last I heard, there's still been no charges filed, but they did hire a, an actual trainer, uh, Al Bellamy, who has been with Temple for the last several years, but he has 25 years of NFL experience, including several previously with Washington. He was on the 1991 Super Bowl champion uh, staff there. No, I don't have any take as to whether this is a good hire. Seems like he's qualified. It's all I can go with. We're going to move on. But that that part is done. I know it's always a constant question and legitimately so, but appears that part is done. So congrats to all. He does have experience with Martin Mayhew as a player, but also I think with Martin Mayhew later in, Mar- in Mayhew's uh, executive career. So kudos. Yeah. And and I'll my one take is that it, I think Martin Mayhew had a, a quote, which is that uh, Al Bellamy is a fantastic person. And it's usually don't get that kind of quote when you're hiring a trainer. We know why that they put that quote out there is because <laughs> the last one is under DEA invest, you know, not allegedly he is right. I mean, there he's under DEA investigation. So I guess it's important. And he went to Ar- Archbishop John Carroll high school, uh, you know, local guy, obviously he talked about his uh, formerly the Redskins background. Um, yeah. So how do you know how good of a, how good an athletic trainer is? You have no clue. It's it's he it's the type of position where it's like the hitting coach in baseball, where if a team's not hitting, everyone's mad. If a team in football's injured, it's the trainer's fault. Um, so, I you know you hope 
it, it he does not have big shoes to fill. How about let's say that um, we we obviously don't have an outcome of the DEA investigation, but when your trainer is being investigated by a federal authority, not usually a good sign. So a new person comes in and cross that off the list. It was kind of problematic. Ben, if I have it correct, the, the team was down a couple of trainers. Like they had a, last year at the end of the season, they had to get sort of like temp workers, people who weren't full-time staff members to come in and help the medical staff because Vermillion was out. And I think another person was out at one point. Yeah, I, so, his, the number two, basically, uh, on, the, on the training staff was also out. They brought in the former trainer with the caps to uh, to help out, and they had some, like, I- I- training interns around. And, yeah, that was a whole other thing. I mean, I, I, we don't have to start off, like, overly <laughs> negative, but it is just to note that a trainer <laughs> under DEA investigation is such a, you know, it, it's like not even – I don't even know if it's on the top ten list of the things that we've all been talking about. Yeah. Um, you know, when they announced it today, I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. Okay, then we got to check that box off. So, so that box is checked. I, yeah, I don't know if we'll talk more about that at some point, but maybe we will. Um, in any event, in in more in in bigger news uh, of the day, we've obviously been talking about Terry McLaurin a lot. I've been reporting about it. I, I had a story up a couple weeks ago about how, look, uh, this wide receiver market is obviously helping. Terry McLaurin, uh, who is a contract extension eligible. But, you know, hey, everybody's kind of cool to see what happens in part because the receiver market keeps going up and Washington knows that it's got time on their side looking out at the, um, you know, what happened last year with John Allen. Um, He didn't get signed his deal until right before training camp, so on and so on. What's interesting, though, here is that it isn't just Terry McLaurin sort of. There are four receivers from that 2019 draft class who are all going into the last year of their rookie deals, all up for new, therefore all extension eligible, all have different scenarios. Of course, we're talking about Debo Samuel in San Francisco, DK Metcalf, Seattle, AJ Brown, Tennessee, and McLaurin. We don't need to get in all their scenarios, but they're somewhat tied together because they're all going through this at the same time. And surely one deal will, will sort of, impact the other and it looks like what Schefter reported this morning was that they're all kind of going to wait it out in terms of like they're going to skip the upcoming uh off-season workouts on the field now just to be clear today players reported to Ashburn for all voluntary for voluntary programs but these were not on the field this isn't otas this is just basically being in the workout room talking to coaches that's it apparently uh what i was told is basically almost all the players showed up except for a few that were dealing with travel from easter terry mclaurin is expected to be there tomorrow but that is one thing it is different what we're talking about is the stuff that like chase young skipped last year that's what mclaurin is saying He's not going to go. I'm not 100% sure if that means he's not going to show up at all or just not participate on the field. But basically, he's not stepping on the field until there's a new deal. And I think for all these players, it may speed up the timeline of when something needs to get done because particularly for the other guys, less than McLaurin, if you can't get a deal done, you want to probably try to trade that guy before the draft to then you know kind of know what you need to do and get more picks or whatever. Um, so all these deals may kind of get moved up quickly including McLaurin 
but that's I don't know. We'll, we'll see where the team comes down on this. Um, but that was the big news of the day, and I was able to confirm that aspect of it that he's not going to step on the field until he gets a new deal done. So significant news. I don't think it changes the story too too much, but it is a new variable. It's one of the uh, leverage points that his side has, and they're clearly uh, going to use it. Yeah, and it, it seems like I think Schefter off of his original tweet uh, threaded a tweet that McLaurin is going to be there for the workouts that he's not going to be on the field for, but he's going to be there sort of in the facility. And Schefter literally wrote, because McLaurin is a team leader, you know, which is always, <laughs> which is nice. So that's thrown in there. Um, I, this is completely understandable, right? That, that, you know, when you're negotiating for sort of um, lifetime money, particularly the frothy market that has become wide receivers over this past few months, that you don't want to risk a single thing, an injury, anything like that. Is it important? So we had this whole debate last year with Chase Young, right? And it looked bad for Chase Young when he wasn't at those workouts that you're talking about that are coming up. Um, I think it's two separate situations. Chase Young was a rookie becoming a second-year player. He was also a team leader. But the excuse that we eventually got was that he did Family Feud and some commercials um, and that he works out on his own. Where Terry McLaurin is a very clear, hey, I'm negotiating a contract. I'm actually going to, it seems like he's going to be there in the facility. But while I'm negotiating the contract, I'm not going to be stepping on the field for the team completely understandable it does set the team at a slight disadvantage yeah sure it would be great to see i'm sure you would love to see carson Wentz and hooking up with terry mclaurin right um it just it 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 makes it so and this has been true forever in the nfl if you really like a player you you sign them to an extension as soon as you possibly can you be a very aggressive early on because what we're already seeing is i have the contracts in front of me for what the top wide receivers make Essentially, the twenty million club average annual value, you know, and obviously not all that's not fully guaranteed and all that stuff, but it goes all the way from Chris Godwin to Tyreek Hill, and in between, that's a twenty million to thirty million dollar range. You know, McLaurin's going to be in there. He's younger than most of the guys that are on the list. It's Godwin, Cooper, Mike Williams, Keenan Allen, DJ Moore. DJ Moore is actually about two years younger already. Stephon Diggs, DeAndre Hopkins. Devontae Adams, Tyreek Hill. McLaurin's going to be on there, whether he's a, a commander or somewhere else. Um, it So it becomes how motivated is the team, Ben, as, as someone who follows the team, it, is this a Juan Soto situation where it's it's heading towards free agency? Is that, That's actually the play for McLaurin's side? Or is it, no, we if we got a great offer from the commanders, we would take it. Do you know what I mean? Is sure. it well? Which I think, way is it? Sure. I mean, so you mentioned the the Schefter uh, tweet thread. Uh, it's an important it's an important tweet. The second tweet to consider here. Now, it is easy to mock because it clearly looks like something that the agent or some you know somebody yes. in McLaurin's world sent to him because it says. He's showing up for this initial off-the-field voluntary program because he's a team leader. That's what it said, essentially. 
Yes. But what's important to note there is this is also how I think is important insight into how his side is looking at the situation. First of all, if you're going to bail, if you're not interested in staying, why even waste your time? There's not, I mean, it's not, what are they doing? You know, I mean, I'm sure there's value to all this, but they're working out and talking some basic, basic football stuff. Like, I mean, you know, it's fine tuning things, but it's not the, the full bore stuff. You don't, you could skip all that if you're not interested in staying. Secondly, the so th- I mean to sort of answer your first question, I think if the Washington makes a legitimate offer, I think he would if he likes it, I think he would take it. I don't think this is he's trying to angle to get out. Uh secondly, the team leader part. All the guys who are on the list of the top uh who get paid the most money, they're all obviously very good at catching the ball and making plays on the field, but not all of them are simultaneously team leaders, team guys who are the face of the franchise type guys. Who, who were also the, the player that coaches point to and say, do what he does, follow his lead with how he conducts himself on the field, off the field. You know, I always say you never know exactly who anybody is, but based on what we know of Terry McLaurin, you know, he seems like a pretty honorable guy and, and the guy does the right things. And I think his side is basically kind of saying, look, we can look at stats all we want, but that's not the whole totality here. He is a team leader. He's even going to show up to do this thing. When we're still, we're not going to go on the field and risk an injury, but we're still going to show up because we still want to, because we want to believe that we will get something done. And, but we want you to understand that this guy is important in that way. And I, I think all that is legitimate. And I think this is a rare example. I say rare, maybe I'm wrong, but like, it's a rare example. It feels like for a non quarterback in this league to have pretty good leverage over the, uh, over the other team for not only for all the things I just said, you know, last year, they, they did a deal with Jonathan Allen. Obviously, it worked out great uh, for everybody. He, he makes a Pro Bowl last year, all that. But Jonathan Allen was one of four guys on that line they had to sort of sort through. Terry McLaurin is a one of one. There is nobody else at receiver on this team right now that you could point to and say he's even close to what he does. And other than Antonio Gibson, you know, he's the best weapon on offense by far and the team leader stuff and all that. So he has a lot going his, his way. And I think this is an example of saying, look, we're going to, show you that we're going to try to do the right thing, but we're also taking advantage of what we have. So I think there's a lot to work with on the, on the McLaurin side. I, I think they want to get a deal done, but we still need to see what Washington comes back with to this point. There have effectively been no negotiations. I was told, which is not, I don't think anybody's freaking out about that, but now what now that this is kind of out there now, let's see what happens. Yeah. And, and I don't, not necessarily transitioning us to draft talk, but you know, there are a lot of wide receivers that the commanders are looking at at 11 and maybe even further down the board. You know, it's the two guys from Ohio State. It's Drake London. I don't know. Jameson Williams, was is he on the list of guys who are checking in with the team? Um, no, Traylon Burks is zooming in, doing a Zoom interview with the commanders. Um, there could be an idea out there that they draft a wide receiver at 11 to, quote, unquote, put pressure on Terry, say, hey, we we got your replacement. You know, this is the, this guy's cheaper, younger. He could be the person, you know, if Terry, if you don't play ball, I actually think what it means is just simply that, um, Hey, Curtis Samuel, you better be really good next year or you're going to be cut. Cause I would imagine his contract probably maxes out guaranteed money after this year. If any, if there's even like a little bit next year. Um, and, and ultimately if you're going to construct a roster, you, if you're paying Terry $25 million a year, 
because he's going to slot in above 20 million easy. Diggs is at 24. Now, Diggs is 29. I think Terry is 27, right? Or Terry will be 27 when the extension kicks in. Um, So by that time, Metcalf and Debo and all those people will also resign. Their value is going to be pretty high, too. Let's say 25, just right anywhere you know and then you if you took a first round pick you spent that asset on a wide receiver that's a lot you're throwing at wide receiver and you know that wide receiver's actual contract will be kind of expensive for a third wide receiver and and so it's like kind of like you have one year of Curtis Samuel you see if if he's awesome obviously you keep him but I think really if they draft a wide receiver at 11 that's a Curtis Samuel sort of like we are going to save money on his contract and push that to Terry. And then we have the guy who's coming off his rookie year, like Drake London or someone else like that. Um, and then, you know, they can go bargain basement for the rest of the wide receiving crew, which they have done. I mean, do you think that it makes basically my question is, is 11. If they draft a receiver, it's not a, a Terry replacement potentially. It's really like a, it's a bet against, hey, we're going to have to pay Terry, so we're going to need a cheaper wide receiver than Curtis in, you know, what, two seasons of time. Does that make sense? Uh, Yeah, it does. I mean, I, I, you know, people have heard me say I don't believe if I was if I'm building a team, I'm not investing a ton in receiver. You have to have a stud or you know, guys who can play, but it is a good position where you can find some people and you know, I'd rather invest more money in, say, the offensive line, which sort of impacts everything versus the receiver where, you know, even the best guys are only catching the ball six times a game. I know that's a little simplistic, but I'm just saying, like, they're not involved in every single play the way other positions are. So, yeah, I I, I, I don't think that they would be drafting a receiver as a McLaurin replacement, and you make a good point. I think Samuel, after this year, they could probably even get out of it because I think it was like a three-year deal, right? Um, yeah, it was a three-year deal, and usually, right, that third year, there's – barely ever guaranteed money particularly for guys who aren't you know right the top end so but i think what's what's notable to me is with with regards to this is you know the last couple of years washington hasn't really had to deal with the salary cap i mean you know that there's a salary cap but they've been flush with money relatively speaking once they made the carson wentz deal of course that that changed they already had to make a few um salary cap cuts of course, as we know, and they still have the Landon Collins on one going to post after June one. So that'll give them some you know, more. So they, roughly they have like a little over six million right now in le- like legit cap space, not counting the money needed for draft picks. The Landon Collins, I think, will put him gives them another roughly under 12 million, but whatever. But the point is that longer term is what now there's things things are starting to come into play here because if you give McLaurin a deal, now let's look at the defensive line. You've got four guys. You already paid John Allen. Deron Payne's up for a deal now. If you don't pay him, if you don't give him an extension now, you lose him probably to free agency at the end of the year. You get a third-round compensatory pick. But then you still have Montez Sweat and Chase Young coming behind him. And right now, obviously, they're both coming off down years. But if we're to believe that they're both going to rebound to some degree, those guys get paid. And, you know, now that money's coming due. So they're start they're going to start very quickly having questions about, you know, how they can afford everybody. And and I get it. The, the salary cap is a real, is it not? What are the, how do the Rams seem to get all these people? Okay. I'm, yeah. I, I don't know. You don't know, whatever. But my point is realistically, you can't pay everybody, which is why I've been harping for a year. 
you got to probably move one of these defensive linemen, but for the moment, at least that's not happening. It's been really quiet on the Duran Payne front. There's obviously been a lot of other factors going on, like McLaurin <laughs> and the draft and, you know, congressional investigations. But um, I think that's the other thing here, the, you know, whatever the McLaurin number will be, how you structure it can really change, you know, it, it, that, that's a huge component of this. And that's, you know, goes beyond just five for a hundred or whatever the final mat numbers might be. But um, that's huge that, that we're, we've re- we're reaching that point where it isn't just pay Terry, pay Terry. Okay. Pay Terry. But now what, what's the ripple effects and the ripple effects are something they haven't really had to deal with since Rivera has been here. And now it is starting to become uh, a thing. I th- and it would obviously, I mean, it's a huge mistake if you don't pay Terry. It's a huge mistake also because the way the team is structured, you know, they had the fir- four first round picks on defense. Chase Young's making $10 million a year, a year about in terms of cap hit because of him being the second overall pick. You know, you talk about Jonathan Allen and his contract coming up. You know, they've spent money at cornerback. They they had spent money at safety and, you know, that they cut Landon Collins. Obviously, Landon Collins is part of the previous regime here. They they don't really have, besides Carson Wentz, and that was a trade, they don't really have a big money guy on the offensive end. Logan Thomas has a pretty reasonable contract for a starting tight end. Obviously, Antonio Gibson's a, a, on the rookie deal that he's on. Um, and you, you've, ta- you've reported yourself that the commanders are bringing in basically the top three running backs in the draft for meetings, which I think is extremely interesting if we're going to dig deep into the draft. Um, but they haven't. there's no big contract besides Wentz on the offensive side of the ball. And if you're going to balance out your roster, if you're going to make bets, you know, make bets on Terry, who's been ultra productive, been a good soldier, you know, a good commanding soldier. Um, and, you know, if if that means that Payne does leave to get that competitive pick, I think that's what the play is at this point. Because yeah. I am. Oh, what's that? No, no, no. I was just saying. I mean, just, and yeah. And just to be clear, like, I mean, I think keeping Terry McLaurin is pretty paramount. It's just how do you get it done? And it's an understanding. OK, well, you know, you do this thing then there's other there's other variables and that's the part and like right now to this point you know we haven't heard you know from washington really on any front since the owners meeting we'll talk to ron rivera and martin mayhew next week before the draft obviously these questions will come up obviously they're going to do their best to not say much assuming that nothing's happened on the mclaurin side since then but it is obviously uh, a variable for sure in any event we'll have more time to talk about that but it is possible that things could get going here in the next before the draft both and it's not just McLaurin keep an eye on those other three receivers because they're all going to be connected in some way just one last thing to mention the other three receivers are all represented by the same agent Tory Dandy I think he's with CAA he also I believe had Chris Godwin and Mike Williams so he's really been controlling the receiver market this uh this offseason and uh you know so keep an eye on what happens with those places by the way, McLaurin is the oldest of those four. He's two years older than basically than, than Metcalf and AJ Brown. So um works a little bit against him there. But in anyway, that's that's something to keep in mind on that front. Uh let's go to the other thing. Uh we are we, we talked about the trainer. We talked about Terry McLaurin, the draft day visits. If this had been just a normal day, no, no update on the congressional investigation or you know, no, no Terry McLaurin news at six Oh six in the morning. It'd be like, Oh, Hey, guess what? The, the commanders have 
some really of the top guys coming in. Kyle Hamilton was in this morning and Garrett Wilson was in at some point today. Those are easily two of the guys, you know, I think if we had the fun debate, who do you pick? Like that could be the debate. Maybe it's Drake London instead of Garrett Wilson and London is coming in this week, but that was the, that was today's activities. Again, these third top 30 visits, not not an indication definitively of, of interest or that the team's going to bring them in or, or, or pick the guy. Right. But you're not also wasting everybody's time. And obviously all these players would make a lot of sense, meaning Hamilton, a defensive back who's incredibly versatile. He's a safety, but he can play a whole bunch of different spots. He's big. Um, you know, he, he, he makes plays. His instincts are off the charts. Um, the question is kind of where do you use him? And then you have Garrett Wilson, who's just, you know, arguably the top receiver in this class. Not the biggest guy, but he's, you know, got also good instincts, strong hands, make plays after the catch. So those were two big variables today, or not two variables, two, uh, two big guys who were in today to visit the old Washington commanders. Yeah, it, I mean, you the list that is out there, it basically reads like everyone's mock draft for at least the, the 11th pick. And then you can kind of see priorities down in the second round. Like Daxton Hill is a really interesting cornerback safety out of Michigan. These visits matter. I think you had a Q&A with Dane Brugler. And Dane says, look at the visits. You know, the visits matter, even though even though they may not be completely predictive of who the team is going to take. I don't think teams really do smokescreen visits to a huge degree. They maybe do one or two, but it's hard to create a big smoke screen out of a visit like that. Um, did you, did you mention the biggest visit of all Ben? the, the one that would get everyone sort of what's the, what's commanders fans favorite thing. It's a backup quarterback. It's the number one position we all love. And there is someone who was brought in for a visit who could would qualify as a backup quarterback. I thought you were going to say that they bring in another kicker. Um, well, <laughs> if you're talking about Carson strong, uh that would be it that's so so i'm excited just even hearing the name come on (laughs) yeah well right it would be amazing (laughs) to have two carsons at quarterback yeah come on Um, yeah so that was from the other day technically it was uh, he wasn't here they went they worked him out on their way to usc for the drake london um workout that was at nevada uh yeah i mean you know again you've all heard my rant I, i went off the other day about don't talk to me about falling in love with a quarterback at 11. Therefore they should draft someone. If they do that, that, that that's ridiculous, but th- they arguably need another quarterback. I mean, Ron Rivera said weeks ago, they probably would plan to have three. I personally think you should always have three quarterbacks and you know, whatever, whatever Taylor Heineke's future is once his contract is up this year, it can't hurt to have another guy and Carson strong according to Dane Brugler. And I think a lot of uh, analysts, he's the number six guy. So there's the top five, relatively in the same bunch and then gap Carson strong is the next guy. He's tall. He's got a good arm, very accurate. He's got uh cartilage from a cadaver in his knee. He's had a lot of problems with his knee. He's got no Wait, mobility. Say that again. Just so people, people may not know what a cadaver is. That's a dead body. Do okay? people not know what that is? Yeah, no, I, I think most people do, but I just want to clarify. And, and it's not that uncommon, I guess, medically to do that um, in terms of, you know, taking from a cadaver but i mean th- this is a real thing so when you go on nfl.com uh lance zerline's write-up of carson strong um he had a surgery this was in high school when he had eight biodegradable nails that were inserted 
to affix his knee to the leg bone. Um, so he has knee issues way back. This isn't just sort of um, a new thing that's cropped up. He he has had leg issues. So he's he's very productive. He has one of the strongest arms in the class. Um, he's the Martin Mayhew had talked last year about the type of quarterbacks that he really supports and likes. And it's guys who have had a lot of starting experience. And that is Carson Strong, exactly. Um, he has zero mobility. The thing I will say, and so Nate Tice and Robert Mays on the Athletic Football Show have talked about sort of like predicting where the trends off of what a too high defense, it, you know, the too high defense that is proliferating the NFL off of what the Rams were doing with Brandon Staley, what sort of the counteraction is going to be. And Nate Tice was talking about how, you know, teams are going to turn back, and this is what he literally said, to a Norv Turner offense. Chuck it deep, you know, vertical stretching of the field. And, of course, we know who the offensive coordinator is for the commanders. It's Norv Sun. And we haven't seen a stretch it deep offense since he's been here because he's dealt with, you know, a number of quarterbacks, none of whom have really all been that great, right? Particularly some who don't have the, like Alex Smith, who didn't even have the ability to throw it deep. Carson Strong is one of the few guys in this draft more so than like Kenny Pickett or Desmond Ritter, he can he can launch it deep, um, and so that's what's interesting about you read his profile and you think about what a Scott Turner offense should look like, and it makes sense. The thing is, when you look at draft evaluations of him, you know he's like a third round pick. Well, the Commanders don't have a third round pick, so are they taking him in the second? Are they going to trade back and obviously pick up a third and then that's where they take them? If they really like them, they probably should take – you know, there's all this like – and I, this is getting way too far in advance of this. But they're going to take a guy. He's not in the first tier. He has talent and he has a huge red flag. It's medical. So, you know, I don't know how involved a head athletic trainer would be in doing a medical evaluation, but they literally, as we talked about at the beginning of the show, they literally just hired a guy – who he's going to have to come in, and I don't know, he's going to have to have some say, right? He's going to have some opinion on whether Carson Strong's worth drafting. You know, as you said, it wasn't an, an Ashburn visit. It was a personal workout. But, I don't know. I mean, he, this, he fits the profile of someone you could get in the third round who has some talent but obviously has some big red flags. That's why they're in the third round. Um, well, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh... – you know, as we said, t- them taking a quarterback, I think is is definitely possible. Um, they don't need to force it because they have two guys. So it's really just a matter of they like somebody great. Um, they only have the six picks, so at this point, and they have obviously, as we know, a bunch of depth holes. So I, I don't know. It may not make the most sense to have a guy who literally, ideally, never plays. Um, I wouldn't think anybody who's your pick if they don't take a quarterback in the first two rounds. Anybody else is just a pure lottery ticket or backup, which is fine. That's the point. But um, so I'm not even looking at those guys like they could potentially start or mean anything. Uh, Carson Strong is interesting. Uh, there's there's some talent there, but they, yeah, the medical stuff is, is is wild. And, you know, good luck to um, Mr. Bellamy coming in and having a, having a really interesting case right off the bat. I, I do think, you know, I just to be clear, you know, in case people criticize me for this later, I've been harping on this idea of a quarterback at 11 makes bonkers no sense. Based on having a best in Wentz, 
I, I have a different view in the second round because at some point you are drafting for value. Part of the reason why the 11 doesn't make any sense is like say last year where guys like Justin Fields and Mac Jones were viewed as legitimately to be picked in that range. Not, not, not a force. Whereas like this year, almost all the quarterbacks feel like a force in round two though. I don't think there's a massive force there, even just based on talking to people. So if say Sam Howell is there, just as an example, at 47 and they felt they needed to do that i wouldn't consider that to be insane it is of course meaning you're you're one of your only two uh picks in the top 100 is going for a guy who ideally doesn't play for you for three years i guess based on if carson wentz works out but i understand again from a lottery ticket perspective all that stuff but that would be one thing and even then like i said I, i just think they've got too many other things to worry about and we'll see if there's even any of the quarterbacks uh there so in any way like i said the big the big story of the day is they continue to start to bring in more and more guys who are in play for them at 11 garrett wilson kyle hamilton today drake london later this week uh, chris Olave was earlier in the process we'll see if like a Derek stingley comes in or if there's any other meetings with anybody else i mean hamilton is in wilson or both mock drafts have them top 10 ish somewhere uh the hamilton thing's starting to slide back a little bit um, I don't know if there'll be anybody else who would be, um, it, you know, sort of in that top 10 range. I don't think Sauce Gardner's getting back that far. Jameson Williams is the only guy, but I don't know. What would he do if he came in for a workout? Just be an interview. Yeah. Right? I mean, I think, I think the challenge, right. The challenge with him is you're basically saying we're probably red shirting this year. I mean, he, he tore his ACL in January. I know. I'm not worried about the long-term thing, medical science and all that, but you know, in terms of this year, what are you really going to get anything out of him? And it just feels like my view from this has been all along is they are in this to make a jump now. And it just makes me feel like if push comes to shove, they're not going to take the guy who's probably not going to give them a lot this year. But I mean, I talk to people, a lot of people say he was the number one guy. And that if you're a team either that's later in the draft and it's almost like, hey, wow, we're getting a great value here and we'll, we're good anyway, we can wait. Or a team like the Houston Texans who have two first-round picks and we're like, hey, we're kind of not going to win this year anyway. So at 13, let's roll that dice. And then by next year, we've got a, an amazing pick and we're pretty happy. So, um, but we'll see. Uh, long way to go. I'll have more on the draft, obviously, coming up. And I should note, if you missed it, Yesterday's podcast, I interviewed uh, Greg Cosell from NFL Films all about the draft. Uh, Mike mentioned my interview with Dane Brugler. Dane and I did talk for the podcast. I will be putting that up this week as well. And I've got a couple other podcast or draft guests coming up between now and the draft. So plenty more to discuss. I'll be writing about it, of course, a lot more over on The Athletics. So you can go check that out. I didn't even say I was so distracted by all the things that were happening here. I didn't even mention, of course, to make sure to subscribe, uh, well, that also to The Athletic, of course, but to this podcast, iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you do your podcasting. Um, Mike, I'll tell you what, if you can hold on one sec, um, let, let, me, let me go to our interview here with our lawyer, Daniel Wallach, talking about everything that's up on the Hill, and then you and I can wrap up uh, on a couple other quick things here if you got a second. Yeah, sounds good. All right, we'll be right back. We're going to talk. Uh, the, the commanders responded to the letter that went up to the FTC last week. Daniel Wallach, legal analyst, is going to help explain to us what happened. Here we go on the Standard Group Only podcast. 
All right, as promised, joining us here uh, to discuss the latest twists and turns with the Washington Commanders, Congress, and the Federal Trade Commission is uh, Daniel Wallach, a legal sport, a legal analyst, uh, focuses a lot on sports wagering. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at Wallach Legal. He has uh, read all of this document. I, I, I'd like to think I did, but I certainly didn't understand a lot of it, but he did, and that's why he's going to help us explain what to make of it all, Daniel? First off, thank you for for the time. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure, Ben. I mean, I spent a long time reading this lawyer's letter. I can tell you, in my entire career, uh, exchanging correspondence and demand letters, uh, an eighteen-page letter is not something that is sort of in the ordinary course of business. This is kind of unprecedented, and uh, I'll tell you, it will be a sad day in sports law when Daniel Snyder is no longer on the scene. He delivers the drama and the ups and the downs and all the legal twists and turns consistently more than any other owner in the NFL, probably more than all 31 other owners combined. <laughs> well, lucky lucky for us, he's in our market and we get that drama uh, all too frequently. Um, I, I guess just well, let me ask you this. Um, you know, it was it was last Tuesday, so it was nearly it was like six days, nearly basically a full week in between the time that they responded to the letter that Congress sent to the Federal Trade Commission last week. And, you know, you kind of knew at some point they were going to come back and, and have responses and counter and, and, you know, kind of we kind of know the script already one way or the other. And, and we'll we'll discuss what you think of their evidence, as it were. But in terms of the the tone, I guess one thing I always just find interesting as a layperson is like I'm used to be seeing legal documents being super bore, boring as a layperson, not a lot of, you know, just, you know, professional jargon and, you know, just laying out details and whatever. And here it, it does read like something that like a person would write at times tonally if they were trying to write a script for how this would, would go. The tone just always seems to be so excessive, almost aggressive. What do you? I think you're sort of getting into this a little bit. What do you kind of make of their tone, just as part of this whole process? Well, I think the tone of the letter almost overwhelms the factual evidence that they used to counter Jason Friedman's accusations and testimony. I mean, it would have been enough to just uh, counter it point for point for point. Yet on top of that, it almost as icing on the cake, they they bring out the fact that. Uh, you know, he he um, you know had a relationship with a subordinate, <clears throat> was abusive to other people. I mean, they bring out all this parade of horribles in order to tarnish uh, the person, and that has nothing. To, it may have something to do with his credibility, but it doesn't bear directly or even may, maybe tangentially, indirectly on the allegations. It seemed to be over the top, and I can tell you, in all the years I've written letters or received letters, I've never called someone else's client or had someone else call my client. A serial liar, quote unquote, as the as the saying goes, once a liar, always a liar. I mean, the Washington commanders really are pushing all the chips to the middle of the table on being 100 percent certain they're in the right, because if there's any statement of fact that's not true in that letter or the way they've sort of portrayed Jason Friedman, I mean, that is a defamation lawsuit waiting to happen unless they're completely certain, 100% certain they have all the goods. And, and in the six days, you know, since the, uh, you know, the, the uh, referral to the Federal Trade Commission, 
the Washington commanders have been uh, going back and contacting former employees in, in finance in a position of dealing with some of these accounting records to give sworn declarations. And these former employees are under no obligation or under any compulsion to cooperate with the Washington commanders. Yet, uh, you know, uh, person after person after person contradicted what Jason Friedman said in his allegedly said in his testimony before Congress. So this is a really strong response by the team unequivocally uh, countering all of his allegations, contradicting it point for point and then going above and beyond and 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 basically tarnishing his reputation by bringing in all these outside unrelated allegations to kind of create this portrayal of a guy who's a maniac or a stalker. So they better be on the money here or this this is going to lead to, to, to more litigation, which wouldn't be surprising as a lawyer. I don't care how much my client is paying me. I would never put those words in a letter. I know there's some aspect of it that might be protected under the law, under this notion of qualified immunity. If you're responding in a legal proceeding, some of the statements you make may be immune from a defamation lawsuit. But this really skirts the edges. And I never would include rhetoric like that in a letter to a, 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 a congressional or a federal agency. It's so inappropriate and over the top, but putting all that aside, they could be right on the money. And, and this is not a credible witness. Uh, it's going to require an investigation because we've only heard, you know, the, you know, Jason Friedman's, you know, side sort of before Congress when he was hamstrung by non-disclosure agreements and non-disparagement agreements. Uh, he couldn't actually, you know, provide all the evidence he wanted to. Yet the commanders seemingly have a very strong response to each accusation. So this isn't the end of it. This is just sort of the beginning of the process. But the commanders came back strong because the stakes are going to be very high. If they're wrong and they misrepresented anything, this not only could lead to defamation litigation, but it could create a conduct detrimental type issue within the National Football League's system of discipline by, by engaging in this kind of false accusation. So they must be 100% sure that this guy is just an outright liar. Otherwise, no lawyer from a firm of that caliber would include accusations like that in a, in a, in a letter that should otherwise just be countering uh, you know, the accusations. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with that. And that was sort of what I was sort of alluding to. Like, it felt like the tone... Like, it felt like as I'm reading this, again, from the layman's perspective, I'm like, okay, it seems like they're doing a pretty reasonable job of countering these points. Uh, again, we only have what Jason Friedman provided the committee initially, and then we only have what they have. And, uh, an investigation will be needed to tell us, you know, what else is there or who's telling the truth or who isn't or what have you. But it felt like they were doing a pretty reasonable job of countering his points, showing him as a person who was low level enough to, you know, he claimed yeah. uh, claimed on a couple of levels of like the idea of, um, uh, uh, you know, where some of the money was going that he didn't quite know that there were, well, there were certain, um, uh, they had certain uh, waivers from the NFL to, to do certain things. And then there was another waiver that came into the only, only people in the accounting department would have known about it. His office is at FedEx field, not in the accounting department in Ashburn. He wouldn't know. And, um, and it really did feel like they did a pretty reasonable job of that. But what stood out to you of the evidence they provided, or at least the counterpoints they provided, what stood out to you as sort of the most, uh, damning or the best comeback from, from them? 
I think the general theme that he's he doesn't possess the experience, qualifications, or job you know position that would put him in a position to make these kinds of assessments. He's a salesperson, not an accountant, not a finance person within the organization. He's he, you know he's he, he doesn't have the you know, access to the facts or or how accounting principles require that these things be accounted for. He certainly it was so it was too distant from the situation where he would really be in a position of any any superior knowledge. But I, I've got to, you know, I've got to commend, not commend, but I'll say that it was a very effective response if you, if you put aside the rhetoric. But as someone who knows how lawyers can be very convincing at telling one side of the story, you have to bear in mind that the other, the counter from a different law firm, this hasn't you know, the, the, the Washington commander's letter hasn't been met yet with any response from counsel, any questions that could be raised. You won't, you're only hearing it through the, through the you know, lens of the Washington commander. Some of those allegations bear further questions. Like, for example, you know, this notion that, uh, you know, the, the, holding the customer security deposits provide no benefit whatsoever to the Washington commander's football team. Actually, it's a liability. Well, that's not true. I mean, you're talking about millions and millions of customer uh, deposits that are on account. Well, what happens to the interest? Who keeps the interest? So there are uh, there are questions that need to be asked of the Washington commanders that weren't necessarily addressed within their sort of pro team, you know, correspondence. That was not a balanced view of the facts, but nonetheless, it was an effective counter to the very scant information that was a, was was made public by Mr. Friedman. So uh, the, the the response I have to that is, well, let's let, let's let, let's see what, what what evidence, all the evidence that Jason Friedman, uh, you know, purports to have, release him from his non-disclosure agreement, release him from any confidentiality obligations that might stem from any separation agreements. Let him come forward and present all the evidence he has. And you know, the FTC as a federal agency is empowered to do its own investigation, to issue subpoenas, and not just simply rely on the one-sided presentation by the Washington commanders. As effective as it seems, at least at this point, uh, I think this does beg for an investigation not only within the league level, but also at the congressional level. And we haven't really heard a response from the NFL, you know, just you know, clearing the Washington you know, commanders of any misdeeds or you know, fraudulent accounting. So I think this is only... The, the, you know, this is only chapter one, but it's a very powerful response by the team, which leaves no wiggle room whatsoever to be wrong, because being wrong here will take them down the path of defamation lawsuits, as well as potentially jeopardize Daniel Snyder's tenure as an owner if, if, if this letter either materially misleads or misstates key facts. But I couldn't imagine that they would produce a response like this unless they were 100% absolutely certain that they did nothing wrong. Um, yeah, it was a pretty aggressive note. One thing that stood out to me about this is, so they're painting, the team is painting uh, Jason Friedman as this person who was, not only was he too low level enough to have known some of these things, but a bad employee mentions that there's like a lot of personal attacks in there that they that they threw out a lot of his uh personal yeah, a, business a bad a bad human being a bad, <laughs> a bad employee right a bad uh, a, <laughs> right exactly and and you know on some level 
this is exactly um, uh, at least in, in turn, or at least tonality the uh, the type of person that when this whole situation started two years ago in terms of an investigation is the type of employee that you people on the outside would have wanted rooted out of the 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 facility out of the out of the building out of the out of the organization and if if what they're saying is accurate then that seems to be something okay this seems like they almost maybe did like a good job on the other hand um he's represented by lisa banks who represents all uh, or many of the women the former employees who have been front and center in the harassment suit against this organization and it seems really interesting to me and and a lot of those employees former employees today came out and said uh, they put out a letter essentially criticizing the organization uh for you know for putting for attacking jason friedman in this way and and so on it is interesting to me though because to your point of like well which side is right if it it feels like jason friedman looks like a, a perfect example of somebody right in the middle if he's if the team is right then he's the type of person they should be getting rid of but if the other side is right you know right then I, I, then it's completely wrong that he was that kind of guy. I, I just think it seems interesting that aspect of this. Well, why did they keep him in the employee for over 20 years if he was such a terrible employee? Right. I mean, all this stuff suddenly came to the surface, like, you know, the week before he was fired. I mean, if he was who they say he is, uh, this should have been known, you know, uh, you know, organization wide for a long time. Yet he was one of the most, uh, you know, long, he, he was probably the longest, ten, one of the longest tenured employees within the Washington football team. That sort of doesn't square with how well, they're portraying him in this letter. And, 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 and some of this stuff, he even lied to his own mother. It's so <laughs> over the top. It right. really is so over the top. And, and you know what allegation really, uh, is, what jumped off the page for me, besides the once a liar, always a liar, the serial liar stuff. I mean, you don't really see that in everyday legal correspondence, so I particularly enjoyed that. But they, they were accusing uh, you know, that law firm is a KMB, which represents some of the other uh, ex-employees of basically being the, uh, you know, source of all this information. They're kind of laying blame uh, at the law firm for continuing to spread this conspiracy and these false lies through Friedman that they've been spreading through other employees. So they almost, uh, it, you know, sort of cast the KMB law firm. I guess it was at Lisa Banks yes. as sort of at the at the hub of this, you know, conspiracy to defame Dan Snyder and the Washington and, and, and to spread false, uh, you know, uh, statements about the team. It's, it's, it's almost driven from, from the, from the vantage point of this law firm who wrote the letter. All of this is being driven by the law firm and, and Friedman is just another, you know, spoke in the wheel of the, you know, false narrative that this law firm has been spreading over the past year or so. Yeah, interesting, and 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 I guess that I, just to go back to what I was kind of saying, you're right. He, if this guy has been there for twenty something years, how 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 are they? And if he yep. is this guy, how are how do they let him in there? How do they allow him to stay? But but the fact that Jason Wright is the one that fired him, who only came in basically, you know, in August of 2020, and that's when everything, you know, that they started to have people. Oh. Cut. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm not, you know, Jason, Jason Wright is not, you know, sort of the savior here. You know, they're 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 also putting out these declarations from uh, people like David Donovan and all these ex-employees sure. whose credibility the the organization is 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 you know 
you know, I guess portraying as, you know, these, you know, lawful and, and, and people who've done everything by the book. So I don't think the uh, organization had a, you know, sort of a, a personality change when, when, when Jason Wright joined as team president. That's all too convenient. Uh, here's the allegation that really, I mean, you know, by pointing the finger at the law firm, I don't know, this, this was the one that I was, I was shocked by at the bottom of page 14. Can, can I just read the sentence? This conduct by Friedman is unfortunately not surprising as it represents nothing more than the latest step in a carefully orchestrated campaign against the team that first became apparent with the use of a burner phone in the summer of 2020 by a then client of the KMB law firm to act as a conduit in passing on false and disparaging information about the team and its principal owner, Dan Snyder, and continues to this day through now KMB client Friedman's fabrications. So they're accusing the law firm of orchestrating this campaign to spread false and disparaging information about Dan Snyder, which blows my mind. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, 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 I totally get it, especially from your uh, perspective. Um, we did hear from the uh, House Oversight Committee, a spokesperson uh, released a statement. Uh, let's read it. This briefly, quote, the committee has been clear that the focus of its investigation is on the team's toxic workplace and the NFL's handling of that matter, uh, which is why the committee provided the statements and documents from Mr. Friedman about potential financial misconduct to the FTC to determine whether additional investigation is warranted. It continues, the team has failed to fully address the issues raised in the committee's letter. If the team maintains that it is nothing to hide, it should welcome an independent review by the FTC or the NFL, which is reportedly examining these issues as well. What do you make of that? Because this all does start with the House Oversight Committee. They were focusing on this bigger or this other issue of harassment in the organization and specific accusations, yeah. including one against Dan Snyder. And then this other issue came up. What do you make of their statement today? Sure, Ben. All they're doing is making a referral to another federal agency whose purview includes doing these types of investigations. The House Oversight Committee is not investigating financial improprieties. That isn't within its portfolio. Its, its mission is, as, a, as a, I think we, we, we had the conversation the other day on the radio, its mission is purely legislative in nature, which is to consider prospective or possible lawmaking regarding toxic workplace environments and the use of non-disclosure agreements. It wants to study and investigate this, uh, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, systemic issue within one of the most publicly visible organizations in, 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 in American life as a, as a way to maybe uh, implement or legislate in, in the area of, of, you know, workplace environments. So, you know, the House Oversight Committee has a very limited role here. It's not a, it's not a prosecutor. It's not going to be investigating these allegations and making fact findings. Its purview is simply lawmaking. So its ability to go forward and, and investigate the, uh, you know, the, the revenue skimming allegations is something that it can't possibly take on without violating the separation of powers, you know, constitutional principle. It is limited to a lawmaking capacity and to the extent it wishes to write or, or pass any new laws, its focus has to be almost exclusively on the workplace environment issue and the issue of sexual harassment and not, you know, go down any of these side roads or tributaries, which go well beyond what what the scope of the original investigation was supposed to entail, which is to focus squarely 
on the workplace environment within the Washington Commanders football organization in furtherance of possible lawmaking to address these issues more globally. Um, we, we, we've talked about this letter, talked about the reaction. Ultimately, what everybody wants to know is, is this, what, are we getting any, cl- four <laughs> yeah, are we getting, where, where does everything stand with the idea of Dan Snyder being in, you know, in, in trouble enough or whatever you want to say to have to sell? This is all anybody ever really wants to know. What do you view of this whole, of this whole situation at, at this point? I will say this. If the National Football League has the goods on Dan Snyder, if he's found culpable with uh, with respect to the latest sexual harassment allegations, if there's any financial improprieties, if the NFL wants him gone, he'll be gone. In every prior situation with the NFL or NBA, when an owner has crossed the line, as in the case of Donald Sterling, Mark Levinson with the Atlanta Hawks, both of whom made racially you know, uh, insensitive comments, and the same thing with Jerry Richardson with, 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 the, with the Panthers. If the NFL wants you gone, you'll be gone quickly, and this won't be belabored over a multi-year period. But we have to also separate fact and fiction. The NFL has also protected Dan Snyder in, in when there were these serious allegations made over you know, years of, of uh, you know, toxic workplace environment with some credible sexual harassment allegations. The NFL protected Snyder by simply finding him what I would consider a de minimis amount for a multi-billionaire and created this sort of phantom you know, separation from the team, which tells me that the NFL doesn't really want to get rid of him because quite possibly you know, the, those who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. And I think the other owners may or maybe even Roger Goodell may fear, you know, getting into a you know bloodbath with, with, with uh, Dan Snyder in some legal proceedings because he's not going to go down without a fight. He's going to go down swinging to his last breath as NFL owner, and he could harm the interests of, of the other 31 owners by revealing some sensitive communications. They're, they're, he knows where all the bodies are buried. So it seems to me that the NFL is going to great pains to protect Dan Snyder when they had every opportunity to get rid of him. But the story or the final chapter hasn't been written because we now have one, this new round of, uh, you know, sexual harassment allegations, I think involving, was it Tiffany? Was it Johnson? Am I Tiffany getting the Johnson, name correct? Yeah. Tiffany Johnson. Tiffany yep. Johnson. So you, so you got that issue. You've got the financial improprieties and also, Looming in the background is the sort of John Gruden litigation and what could come out of that in the way of discovery and what role, if any, Dan Snyder may have played in in in, in sort of getting these allegations about John Gruden's private communications with Bruce Allen, you know, sort of, you know, before, you know, before his current team, what role, if any, did he play in that? So I think the walls are closing in here. You've got the civil litigation system in the Gruden case and more importantly, Congress could play a very important role in, in demanding uh, some of the background materials and investigative materials that so far Dan Snyder and the NFL haven't fully produced to the House Oversight Committee on the basis that they're protected by a joint defense agreement. Well, there's, there's, an, there's a question as to whether these types of agreements are even recognizable in a congressional investigation. And if, the, if, if Congress wants to get to the heart of what really happened in the teen corridors going back a quarter of a century, they can they can compel testimony in front of a here in front of a committee. They can compel the production of documents, and I think that's probably the 
you know, the, the real vulnerability for the uh, NFL and for Dan Snyder in that Congress has the kind of powers that can make life very difficult and complicated for the NFL and for Dan Snyder. So that would be that would be sort of the tipping point that I would watch for to maybe alter this dynamic. But I mean, this guy's like, this guy's like Dracula, you know, you can't kill him. Uh, he's had, he's had everything. He's had more legal stuff happen in the, in the orbit of his ownership than all of the other owners combined. Yet he seems to have the stamina to continue fighting. And he's been like the Teflon Don. Nothing has really stuck to him, but, if there's anything to these recent round of allegations, uh, his, his fellow owners uh, would obviously, if unless they feared repercussions from from his disclosure of, of you know confidential details that could embarrass them, all it's going to take is three quarters of the remaining owners to vote for him to divest his his ownership interest if he's violated the NFL bylaws of constitution or committed conduct detrimental to the game of football. There's enough wiggle room in the NFL constitution and bylaws to allow Roger Goodell to recommend to the executive committee that, that Snyder be forced to sell his interest. And if he's guilty of something, it doesn't have to be a felony, but if he's guilty of anything that constitutes conduct detrimental to the game, it could even be falsely, you know, calling this employee a serial liar. You know, even something like that could constitute conduct detrimental. If they want him gone, he'll be gone. But if you ask me for an over/under on when that's going to be, I, I, I guess you know your guess is as good as mine. But it's not trending in the right direction. This is almost like it has a feeling like like like, like this is going in a, in a in a particular direction where it's going to be untenable for him to remain as owner of the team. I just don't know when that's going to occur, but this is obviously getting worse uh, for Dan Snyder rather than just sort of fading in, into the background. You you mentioned Dracula. Now I just thinking to myself, fans should bring garlic to the games next year. And uh, right. Isn't that it? Isn't that the, uh, isn't that what you Well, didn't you... the St. Louis fan, St. Louis Rams back in the day, their fans like burn sage. I guess if you, you know, you know, you know, carry a you know, burn sage to you know, wish for something to come true. Uh, you know, maybe you could start a movement in 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 D.C. and Maryland that burn sage because uh, this organization is going to remain under a cloud uh, unless and until he's either you know until until he sells the team or he's vindicated. But if he's vindicated, you know, look look at the last quarter of a century. Is this is this what you really want to have for the next twenty five years? fighting and interfering with the with team operations there just seems to be a lack of professionalism in how the organization is run from the top down unless he undergoes a personality change and a metamorphosis uh you know th th this doesn't bode well uh you know for sort of the, the team's stability uh, as long as he remains in power because i can't imagine that this is going to be the last time uh, we're going to hear about some legal uh, you know, some legal crisis ensnaring the Washington Commanders and Dan Snyder. It just seems to be like a a, a regular occurrence rather than a, a periodic occurrence. Absolutely. All right, uh, Daniel Wallach. Really appreciate the time. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at Wallach Legal. I imagine he will be tweeting about uh, this the next time we have some developments, and I think we know there will be more developments to come. Thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Ben, it's my pleasure as always. I enjoyed our conversation and definitely one of the most fascinating 
uh, legal stories of, of recent vintage in the NFL. So thanks for having me on. <laughs> Appreciate it. All right. Uh, back here, Ben with Mike Smeltz. Uh, I don't really even know what I had to, to, to discuss here in the end, other than just to, you know, sort of. You had me wait here for a full hour. <laughs> yeah. Magic uh, of podcasting. No. Right. But, um, I, I am I'm 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 gonna let you help me be the you know help me see the forest through the trees because yeah. today I said to somebody earlier today was a year it was a long day and I always preface like I, I I have a fun job I get that but I'm just saying today was a lot and you know who knows what tomorrow will bring and it's only going to ramp up more just because of the draft if nothing else we're still waiting on a bunch of free agency stuff they haven't done it's amazing how little they have done. I'm not saying it's a complete disaster, but it's just shocking how little they have done here in free agency. So uh, we continue to wait on that front. But as you sit here, give me your, you know, sort of quick view of the state. Don't forget this. Forget the, the Snyder stuff. Just from the football side of things. Your your pulse of, as, as, the, as a fan of where things stand right now. I, I believe. And I'm sure Ron Rivera said this. They feel like they're pretty good. They thought that taking Carson Wentz, that he's an upgrade. I think it's it's almost a no-brainer that he's an upgrade over Taylor Heineke. I don't know how big that gap is, though. But they think taking him, getting a little bit more health, getting Curtis Samuel back and actually playing football, hoping that Chase Young and Montez Sweat have sort of reformed their ways – I fear that Montez Sweat and Chase Young are a little bit too much of young Bradley Beal and John Wall, just kind of thinking they're <laughs> they're bigger and better than they are. Um, you know, I would like to see them actually play football together and play well and play sort of in the team concept. So By I the just way, think, should yes. just mention that as in the in the I would say OTAs in the workouts today, Chase Young was shown there. Um, he is obviously recovering from his ACL, but he was there. He skipped it all last year. Now he is recovering from the from the injury, so he clearly can't be as out and about doing the things. He's got a rehab, but duly noted, he was there today as a voluntary program, and he was there. And he was pushing a sled. He I was. saw he was pushing a sled, which is very and Montez Sweat was smiling, and everyone was wearing a commander's gear, so that was exciting to see. Um, yeah, I I think. One, they didn't have too much that they could do because of the they made the Wentz move and that killed their salary cap space. Um, they are so stressed, though, Ben. They are, they are so desperate, um, and that's what concerns me going into the draft. Is that you talk? We talked about Jamison Williams before you went to the interview. It's like when Ron Rivera got here, he talked a lot about long build. You know, hey, you know, we're building a program. It's going to take three to four years. That's what it takes in the military is what he referenced. We're going to do that here. We're in year three, and he's already you – you know that they're not going to make the best pick for their long-term future. They're going to make the best pick that they aligns with the need. A lot of teams do that in the first round. In the first round, pretty much everyone picks for need. Um, I don't think the team should do that. So where are they? I mean – Colin Cowherd, we've talked about this before. He's loudly stated that I think he puts Wentz number two in the NFC East or something as in terms of quarterbacks. Um, That's not wrong, is it? I don't think it's wrong. I mean, I, mean, you know, I, like I like James, Daniel Jones, but yeah. I there's massive flaws with him, too. Yeah, if either of those other Daniel Jones or Hurts makes a leap, fine. But based on where we're at, 
No. Let me. I'll. I'll you remind me of something here because you mentioned Bradley Beal and John Wall. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. All good. So I did uh, a bunch of radio over the weekend in town, and and one of the topics was which of the of the four main pro teams in town, which is the which fan base should be the most frustrated. Oh, okay. And we kind of ruled out the Caps and the Nats for you know Caps are keep making the playoffs, and the Nats well, just won a World Series relatively recently. As a Nats fan, I'm pretty frustrated with Juan Soto thing. But yes, sure. Yeah. Everybody, there's an argument for everybody, but yeah. ultimately you have to rule <laughs> some people out. And I was doing it with our friend Britt Giroli, who covers Major League Baseball, and she kind of thought, assumed I was going to the Commanders because of all the things. And I said, no, I'm not. Now I'm not going to get. In, I, I'll, I won't bore everybody completely on the Wizards, but I, I basically my, my Wizards thing is they had a chance to do a restart once they traded Westbrook. If you trade Bradley Beal. You're, you, you can rebuild, restart, redo the culture, fix a bunch of things, and already get a head start. Instead, they're locking themselves into mediocrity, more or less, because they don't have one or two of the top 10 or 15 players in the league, and I don't think they're, their ceiling is like the sixth seed. But I also said for the commanders, despite all the problems, despite Dan Snyder, despite all these things, and I've, you've, you've heard me say 100 times, and I believe it, they're not going anywhere with Dan Snyder as the owner. But that's for long term. Like uh, Consistently, you're not winning under this setup. But in terms of next year, just next year, they won seven games last year with Taylor Heineke, a quarterback, and a defense that was completely underachieving, not to mention the injuries and everything else. They now have a better quarterback. We'll see how Carson Wentz does, but he's a better quarterback than what they had. If the defense comes back and performs at a level, let's least say top half of the league, they have the easiest strength of schedule, the division isn't that hard, and they play in a sport in which we see teams constantly go from bottom to top. I'm only saying that it's not like I'm not saying they're going to the Super Bowl or even contending. I'm saying you you, you play this out on a hundred a hundred times, and there's a couple there's there's a few scenarios in which they have a good you have a good year and contend on some level. That 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 that's kind of where this is at. But on the other hand, I mean, in other words, it's not all doom and gloom, despite the constant yammering. Except that the, there's still more variables, of course, that would suggest it's not going to work out for all the reasons we've discussed but i'm saying there is a puncher's chance out there that they could have a good year and that's not nothing i, I would just say and that's what that's what reminds me yeah. of the wizards thing because the wizards to me just lock themselves into six to six to ten seed at best and hope for the best yeah i mean if anything and i think most people feel this way if you're a commanders fan and i know you can't say this ben because you're a reporter but the FTC investigation, the congressional investigation, those are good things. Those are optimistic things for the franchise. Because even though it seems so unlikely that those could turn into, you know, uh, the creep break-in of Watergate, that it could force the resignation of Richard Nixon, you know, maybe the, this ticket scandal alleged could be the thing that becomes the Snyder Gate that forces Dan Snyder. So if anything, I again, the the involvement of the federal government within the commanders is a positive. That's This is something that is keeping me uplifted during the day, that our federal tax money is going towards potentially removing uh, Mr. Snyder from his ownership. So that so I'm excited about that. That's a positive. If, if I had to rank it in within DC sports excitement, it would be pretty high up there. Um, and I agree with you. I think the problem, so... If if Carson Wentz, if we didn't know sort of like the awkwardness that happened in Indy, 
that he was just pushed out the door in Philly. And he kind of just had this like robotic quarterback uh, who had his statistics from last year. I think it'd be a lot more excitement about him. And if there's excitement about him, the fan base is more excited about the team. Um, I just think we're pretty smart fans. And uh, the Carson Wentz thing is just like so overwhelming of like, ah, we don't know. He doesn't feel like the guy. And if he's not the guy, then like, it's going to be next year or the year after that. And then when's the guy coming, you know, but this team should be good enough that if he's a dude, that should be fine. Right. And right. you're right. I think there's some, there shouldn't be pessimism about the team. Really? The team is going to be, you know, they right. could be seven wins up to 10 wins, right? That's kind of the range that they may be in. Right. And like I said, this is different than the wall. They shouldn't have given up all the much they gave him or why do they, you know, should they have done something else at quarterback? I'm not saying any of that stuff. I'm just saying here's where they're at, right. and you know whatever happens, we don't. I, I can't predict Curtis Samuel will play a lot or Chase Young rebounds. But if Curtis Samuel performs at the level people are expecting him to, and Chase Young gets you know nine to twelve sacks and Montez Sweat the same, you know, et cetera, then who knows? I don't Can even I know ask what a I'm. Quick s- question. Uh, yes. At 11. So we talk about sort of like raising the ceiling for this team this, this year. There's desperation. What would, what would help the team most this coming year? Is, is it one of the wide receivers, pick whichever one you want or Kyle Hamilton? I, I would say it's Kyle Hamilton because right now I don't know who's playing the 11th defensive spot. Uh, you know, I guess you could point to Benjamin St. Juice, but that means Kendall Fuller is going to have to move inside, and he was, you know, he's he's historically done fine there, but he was better last year outside. Um, and we still don't even know who the third linebacker is at all. And Kyle Hamilton can sort of do all those things. Whereas at receiver, uh, any of these guys would be in theory an upgrade. But I still think that Deami Brown, I, I still expecting more out of him. And if they just throw the ball to Cam Sims, he makes plays. They just don't throw the ball to him enough. Plus, you know, you can you can get receiver help in other rounds of the draft. So. That would be, I think Kyle Hamlin is the ready to go guy who would help them as more than the, a, a, a receiver in theory. I mean, obviously, it's all, you know. Yeah, I totally agree. I think this obsession at receiver at 11, which I'm happy if they take Drake London, but there there are so many, this this draft in particular, there are sort of like waves and waves of, of useful wide receivers in the second round and then maybe later round. So I, I think it's sort of, we get so obsessive about first round because that's where all the mocks are and we can, we know those players the best, but they can, I mean, Terry McLaurin was the third round pick, right? So you can get guys, Debo second round, right? Metcalf second round, the 57th pick. I think you can get guys. I'm looking at Cooper cup right now at the top of the, well, I mean, Terry McLaurin was a third round pick. Right. I mean, right. just this year, I mean, we, I mean, Dane Brugler was saying after about the fourth or fifth round, it starts to die off, but you know, they have a second and a fourth, so they have some options. Uh, Greg Cosell said his number one receiver or the guy he liked the most was uh, George Pickens from Georgia, who most people have going in the second round. So uh, yeah, you can find some help in a few other spots, but we'll see. Um, we got a few days to go. Uh, Mike, I appreciate you helping organize uh, my, my thoughts in this podcast. <laughs> uh, I appreciate that. Mike, tell everybody how to find you on social media or so, wherever you want them to find you. Yeah, I, I at Mike Smeltz, I, I rarely tweet. Um, you can also just try me on LinkedIn. Hey, no one throws out the LinkedIn. Nobody no, has I'm ever on, thrown out the LinkedIn. I'm on there on LinkedIn. Get me, connect with me. I'll, I'll connect with you. Unless wow. if you're someone who's... You know, I don't know. Very strange. But I will connect with you. Yeah, why not? 
LinkedIn's a great, what's my favorite social media platform? Come on, people are so, you know, professional and nice and, you know, it's, it's a good one. So LinkedIn. <laughs> there you go. All right, well, that's my first LinkedIn plug um, for here. Um, and thanks to uh, Daniel Wallach for his time as well. And for everybody here for checking out the podcast. Uh, more to come this week. It's only Tuesday. and We've already done two podcasts. I guarantee at least a third. And honestly, there could be more because we got a lot of to, dra- to talk about here with the draft. And once it go- once the draft comes, we can't go back and talk about it anymore. So uh, that's it. Ben Standig signing off. Until next time. See ya. Thank you.